0: Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast, I'm Dr Oliver Thompson. So on this episode I spoke with Matthew Lowe. Matthew is a consultant physiotherapist in the south of England and is a visiting associate at the Orthopaedic Research Institute at Bournemouth University. He qualified from the University of Southampton and completed his master's degree in neuromuscular physiotherapy at the University of Brighton. And Matthew has lectured and examined for pre- and post-registration students at a number of universities in the south of the UK. He has lectured on the subjects of motor control, spinal manipulation and clinical reasoning skills. Matthew has an interest and is published in areas of person-centred care, the theory of causation within healthcare settings, philosophy, reflective practice, and critical thinking skills. So, in this episode, Matthew and I touch on many different subjects relevant to contemporary mosquito practice. And Matthew has a brilliant grasp of a broad range of very important yet complex and challenging areas. And we attempt to tackle some pretty big topics, all of which really require a dedicated podcast each to fully unpack. So, this podcast could be titled The Knowledge Think, given we threw everything into it. We talk about the nature of knowledge, which we as clinicians use, the assumptions of dominant knowledge structures and how these relate to past and current conceptions of evidence-based practice. We go into the challenges of applying evidence to our practice and locating the individual patient in the ocean of research evidence. So this podcast will be valuable to clinicians who are contemplating the complexity of their clinical practice, as well as those that like a sprinkling of philosophy on their clinical work. And Matthew will most certainly be back He has a particular interest in motor control and has written some excellent papers in that area. So please let me know which topics you'd like us to talk more about. So I bring you Matthew Lowe. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Ollie. One of the main reasons why I wanted to to speak with you on on the show is that you and I share very similar interests, uh, whether it's evidence-based practice, person-centered care, how to navigate kind of complexity of clinical practice. We lie awake thinking about the nature of knowledge as does everyone, (laughs) I'm sure, Uh, or they think about the nature of knowledge to get themselves off to sleep. Um, But I think it'd be a really good, good starting point is for you to just describe your, your journey and how you've gone from maybe, you know, uh, through your physiotherapy career to, to where you are now. And like any good qualitative description um the the listener will be able to judge some of the transferability and you know maybe some of your experience will resonate with with the listener which might be be valuable so so um all yours tell us about yourself and where you are now
1: um thank you so yeah um so i i went to university at yeah at southampton so southampton university i qualified in 2003 um and At that stage, I had a really, really clear idea, or I felt I did, about what it was to be a physiotherapist, and it was an excellent educational um, process. Uh, I had good clinical placements, um, very supportive, Um, and I started work at the Royal Bournemouth and Christchurch Hospitals, um, of which I did some clinical placements in, Um, and I did my rotational posts. You know, cardiorespiratory neuro MSK and I specialized in, in MSK and I got a lot of clinical experience that way. Um, I then went to Brighton University and studied my master's. Of course, you know Brighton pretty well. I know Brighton well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I started my master's there with Nikki Petty, who I understand is uh, one of your PhD supervisors. She was my
0: supervisor. Uh, She's sadly retired now, far,
1: far too yeah, early, but, but she was brilliant. She was great. And um, people like Claire Hebron, Colette Rydell, uh, Guy Camby. Um, and it, that part of the journey, I felt uh, really profoundly looking back, changed the way that I viewed practice. So, so how, how I view practice up to that stage and probably a little bit beyond that stage was if I had enough knowledge, if I could acquire enough knowledge, um, by knowledge, I, I meant really research knowledge, I felt that I'd be able to apply that knowledge to particular cases and it would be easy. It would be, you know, it's just a question of uh, understanding the evidence. And I understood the evidence as a very much a a singular thing. So if people said to me, what, what do you mean by evidence? Well, I, I would be thinking research evidence. Um, and when I did my master's, it was, um, it improved my understanding of research and clinical practice, but I, but I also I think it was uh, something that really helped me develop as a person myself. That that experience kind of led me on to evaluate just different ways of working. Um, so uh, both within practice, so Neil Langridge, was, who's my um, friend, but you know at the time is my clinical mentor and still is, um, and he he developed areas of my practice. Uh, which looked beyond propositional knowledge, knowledge as as facts, really, um, and how to apply it sensibly in front of it or with patients. Um, But for him, it was such an implicit thing. He didn't really have to think about it. Mm -hmm. For me, me, I kind of needed to understand it a little bit more. Um, And this really came to a a head, I guess, when I watched Peter O'Sullivan in London when he came over to do one of his courses. no, this must have been 2010 or something like that. Um and I have a okay, uh, in-
0: was was CFT just take, taking shape then, I guess.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the time he would be um uh he'd be describing movement impairments and control impairments, um, which of course I think he's kind of left we left that behind quite some time ago. Um and I was really interested in clinical reasoning, um or I still am interested in clinical reasoning. Um and After watching him in practice, I uh, kind of developed with him this clinical reasoning tool, which had this idea of movement impairment in one pole, load impairment in another pole, control impairment in another pole, and then these. um, And that was that just kind of framed my thinking at the time, which was very movement orientated, very biomechanically orientated. Um, And he then added. Uh, the other components, which was the mm. psychosocial component, which historically, for me, and perhaps this may resonate with other people, were always seen as add-ons. We were always aware of psychosocial context, but they were always an additional. They weren't really the, the, the you know, the, mm. the focus of, of care, um, lifestyle factors, and pain mechanisms. So I had this kind of this you could you could diagrammatically try to understand your clinical reasoning through. Uh, where, which aspect of the patient in front of you could you try and apply this knowledge toward? And um, by by doing that, I thought about agreement. So let's say you and I, Ali, were watching a patient. Um, what would be the agreement if we hadn't been able to speak to each other? We're both looking at the same patient, both looking at how they move. Would we agree if that patient was able to move or not? Would we agree about what those loading parameters were? And would we agree about what their motor control would be? Now, I put it to you that we would agree if that patient would move or not. We would probably agree if there was an a- what aspect of load, whether or not it was high, low load or uh, at the extremes, but could we come to any agreement about what motor control was? Um, and so that's what spurred on the next aspect, which was the dissertation aspect of my MSc. And so, the reason why I come to that is if you're trying to do a concept analysis, which is what I went on to do, I did a concept analysis of motor control, you need to understand philosophy. and that that was my first kind of venture into philo- philosophy and how philosophy relates to practice. and it was it was really it was a huge um, rabbit hole I would you could probably say, <laughs> of which when you first venture in it, you're thinking, what am I doing? But actually, once you venture into it, it's, it, 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 it provides real great opportunity for critical thinking and self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Which, which, when you see uh, experts in practice, those uh, attributes or attributes really come through. You, you um, and you've um, you yourself and and you've, you've communicated with others who are critical thinkers and their ability to um also self-reflect on that um on their experiences and their knowledge and how things have gone have really catapulted themselves into positions i think mm-hmm. that they, they they perhaps have and have, have um, you've
0: got two kind of islands of uh, i guess domain you've got motor control on one side which isn't doesn't appear at face value to be deeply philosophical <laughs> but, <laughs> but but to understand anything meaningfully and deeply you've got to ask the the, you know the 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 right questions and and, and i and i suppose that's what that that's having that philosophical journey enables you to to adopt a perspective on motor control it could have been anything right you could have been looking at manual therapy or or k taping or needling but whatever it is it allows you to to adopt a position or range of positions to ask the the appropriate questions
1: Yeah. And so, so, so Nikki, Nikki uh, Petty and Claire Hebron will be saying to me, Matt, what's your ontological position? What's your epistemological position on this? Yeah. And of course we can see this look at each other and kind of grin and go, Oh God, you know, but at the time I was kind of freaking out thinking, what the hell are you on about? Um, But, uh, but actually, you know, it's really important.
0: Yeah. And I was going to say, Nikki wrote a bit about this and, and we wrote a bit about it together in a paper that those, 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 you know, those concepts or those ideas, epistemology, the, the nature of knowledge, and ontology, nature, reality—they are—they do. I know, I know when I first heard them, as a kind of, um I guess, when I was doing some research methods t- training for my PhD, they just—they just seem such abstract and probably not not useful concepts to know as a clinician. I, you know, they have value as a research. You've got to, you know, I appreciate them. But as a clinician doing motor control in your clinic, you know, really, why does why should anyone have to contemplate the nature of of their reality or the nature of knowledge, but really as, a, but there is value I mean, as a, as a clinician thinking about, you know, what knowledge is important to me? What knowledge do I value? What sorts of knowledge do I incorporate into my, my reasoning? What sorts of, you know, what's the reality of my clinical practice? How do I see clinical practice? You know, is it just made up of bits of people? Is it made up of um, in, interpersonal knowledge? You know, what does my practice look like? And so there are some real, you know, these, whilst these concepts appear at face value to maybe be, to be researchy and impractical and cumbersome or impossible to, to utilize the clinician, they, they have value.
1: Mm, huge. I mean, so, so just let's take, I mean, we, I know the purpose of today may not be motor control, but, you know, if we use my, my journey as, a, and as an example, if you're trying to understand what motor control is, well, you have to understand, okay, well, where's it come from? And as soon as you start to understand its history, then you have to think, OK, so if I'm trying to understand this, do I understand this as an entity? Is motor control something that's fixed, that's, that's objective, that can be repeatable in all situations, in all contexts? Or is it less? Is it a bit more of a permeable concept? Yeah. Or is it a really fluid concept? What is a concept? Yeah. So, so I know these sound like silly questions, but what starts to happen is, is that your assumptions, or our, should I say, yeah our assumptions about what we do in practice really came to the surface then. So, yeah, yeah. you know, what, 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 what I started to consider were all of these things that we just thought um, were um, – all of these things that we just didn't even think about. We just said, oh, yeah, no, major control. And that really came through in the research. So this might be a topic for another, another, another podcast at another time. But you know, some of the research I did meant that the that even, even the, the authors of studies made – did not make uh, the context of motor control absolutely explicit. Motor Mm -hmm. control just became something that everyone knew. You know, oh, you know what I mean by motor control, don't you, Ollie? Yeah? You know, and I was kind of winking at each other, saying, yeah, you know what I mean, really, yeah. Um, So, and it was born from an, an aspect of knowledge, which is, Passed through in history, so mm. uh, you know a lot of our knowledge is is constructed from those who we look up to, uh, those mm. at university or those of our peers or those of our colleagues. Um, so, so motor control became almost something there that, uh, in itself, was is it, 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 again going back to the philosophy side. Um, is some is for motor control something that I could record and know and understand? Or is it something more than that, and yeah. you know I, I, I could go on, but my point is is that that permeates practice so yeah. when when I clinically reason something or when we clinically reason we we do so in ways in which um, it uncovers the way that we think and how we think has to make sense for others, because ultimately yeah. when you're when you're trying to uh, facilitate behavior change or when you're trying to create an interaction or intervent- an intervention, which is an interaction, of course, then you have to understand all the, the, how that knowledge, knowledge makes sense to others. So now knowledge is no longer something that exists in my head and that I somehow just kind of like Dumbledore take it out of my ear and put it into yours. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that needs to be co-constructed. Uh, and we both have to make sense of it. And actually beyond that, that person has to make sense of it to others in their social environment. Yeah so so that's where I kind of that's 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 where I kind of that's where philosophy I think started for me becoming very very um it's not distinct it's not an island and science is not an island the the, yeah. the both the both of science and philosophy has to work without without philosophy we don't uncover the assumptions of science and and equally for science we don't uncover the assumptions made in philosophy they both work together
0: and I think we we can move on to in, it's on on similar lines about evidence based medicine, evidence based practice. You've obviously written a bit about that, and and have an interest in 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 that idea. And it's it's the same sort of argument that evidence based practice, when it was put forward, evidence based medicine, when it was put forward, had a set of assumptions about um, hierarchies of knowledge and prioritising certain types of knowledge over others. And those traditional conceptions of of EBM or EBP, there were implicit assumptions within them that that there is some knowledge which is valuable and reliable and useful or more useful than other types of knowledge. Uh-huh. And I wondered what you thought about that and maybe f- for listeners to 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 give a a bit of a a, a, a summary of of your view of evidence based medicine with a view to maybe where it started out and kind of how you see it now because there's there's it's it's to some extent, a, a, a contentious subject among professionals, academics, people are kind of arm wrestling over the nature of evidence and nature of knowledge and where clinical judgment and expertise fits into into, into the into the the model. So maybe just and there's about fifty questions there. I lobbed at you. <laughs> so go through them any any order, any which way you like. And um, and
1: also I've got to t- acknowledge my. Um, uh, Appreciation and um, of of the course health project I was involved with, which was mm. a project that I did with some philosophers and clinicians, and that really mm. helped in in the journey uh, that uh, and which I'm still. I mean, this e, the EBM debate is still not over, um, mm. um, and so so let's go let's go on to EBM. Um, so evidence based medicine. If we go back, uh, gosh, it's. Uh, it's got to be at least 30 years ago, I think. But anyway, so we're looking at the Gordon Guyatt and those from McMaster University, including Dave Sackett. Basically, um, there's a group of um, uh, epidemiologists, uh, researchers med- in medicine who, for good reason, uh, wanted to uh, create a body or a movement which, um, of, of, underst- of trying to use um, research. As a form of um, in, in how we integrate clinical research into practice, now um, you know at the time, I, it's difficult for me to, to to position myself in this because I, I was quite ignorant. I'm, I'm talking about this after the fact, I wasn't part of it. and but if you look at, say, Trish Greenhall's a huge influence in the EBM movement, she, she was part, uh, she was part of it when it came over to the UK. Gordon Guyatt and his colleagues, including David Sackett, had um, introduced this this movement. What this movement was, was trying to help clinicians make make, make, uh, clinical judgments, clinical decisions for the care of individuals. And that's what they said right from the get-go. What they did is they created a hierarchy of evidence of which the most trustworthy evidence at the top was systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials Underneath that randomized controlled trials and anything underneath that was seen as observational. And um, the issue with observational uh, forms of research was that uh, of course it has higher risk of bias and bias is going to lead us down this kind of path of making ill-conceived decisions. And due to some aspects of the nature of knowledge is that you pass on that to the people you know um, that you're teaching and educating, and they start to pick that up as a form of truth themselves. So we we self perpetuate this area, this this idea of, of bias, and that just kind of systematically goes through generation to generation. So, so for for good reason, they wanted to use highly controlled methods methodologies to reduce the risk of bias, so that when you're comparing interventions, you know which. Uh, what, which, which intervention you know the better of the uh, uh, of the interventions that you that you would select, and you know when you look at it at face value, you think, well, what's the problem with that? You know, it's that's um, very intuitive, um, but in order to make that very very rigorous, randomised control trials and other forms of rigorous methodologies, you have to have a very constrained. Isolated world. You have to uh, uh, have quite rigorous inclusion exclusion criteria. Um, Sometimes you don't. So nowadays, uh, you know, we use pragmatic randomized control trials. There's lots of different ways of quite complex forms of uh, uh, methodologies now. Um, uh, So it's become far, far, far better. But ultimately, the idea of randomization is that it reduces that risk of bias. Uh, However, you know, if you look at some of the work by Ioannidis uh, or Roger Kerry, who's looked at uh, uh, randomised control trials and systematic reviews of randomised control trials in particular, he found that sometimes the risk of bias falls through into the systematic reviews of randomised control trials, and there's more likelihood that you will have a false answer than a true answer. Um, But that's that's a different conversation. (laughs) But so so essentially, essentially, the idea of randomised control trials. Became ingrained is to the mm-hmm. absolute way of applying the decisions for individual cases, but le- but there's a few problems. One of them is that you're applying the average treatment effect across a population, and then you have to apply that, you have to infer that to the individual case. So then you have to look at that individual case, the patient in front of you, and then you have to look at their attributes, their context, their social circumstances, and say, well, how is that person relevant or Transferable or, um, it, it, or embedded within that population study, and if I'd make this decision, if I is this person going to respond or not? Um, so if we live in a closed world, by that I mean the natures of cause are linear. So if I uh, if I could um, say everything about you, Wally, the way you look, the way you are. The, the various um you know thoughts feelings beliefs behaviors if i could control them and understand them put you in a nice little box
0: it's my, my wife's been trying to do that for many years <laughs>
1: <laughs> but if i could do that if i could control the world as it is then it, it becomes far far easier to then to make some judgments about how that may and 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 that, that even even if i can to manipulate that world too manipulate that, absolutely. Um, but I then have to assume that um, the person in front of me is you, like you as well. So, I mean, there's a huge amount of of challenge. Now, that's not to suggest it. It's really, really important. Randomized control trials are extremely important. And I don't think anybody who's... Uh, uh, I, I genuinely haven't met anybody who's anti-EBM and, or EBP, and I'm certainly not one of them. Um, but I've met a few. Really? Okay. Um, you know, uh, because but it, it it's the way in which I think it needed to be strong in those early days. But now there's the real EBM movement, mm. uh, which has started to say, "Oh, actually." Um, let's return to some of those values of looking at the individual case. Because where EBM was going was saying, look, there's no evidence. If you haven't got a randomized control trial, it would be posing some of these questions of, well, we shouldn't be doing any of these interventions. If you haven't got a randomized control trial for support intervention, we shouldn't be doing anything. And that was becoming problematic. And that was then going into policies. And then policies was then dictating practice. So there was no pressure from a kind of policy-driven perspective, but also a research-driven agenda, which then was taking taking away from the clinician. For, fortunately, that's not the case. No.
0: What I never quite understood is is why was EBM so intervention-driven? Why was the main question about, well, what's the best intervention for this patient? Whereas when I have a patient in front of me, I have a range of questions that are just floating in my head. One of them is, you know, what's the best way to treat this patient? But I've got a ton of other questions, you know, but, how should I speak to this patient? I wonder what they're feeling. I wonder what their thoughts are, and 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 so now, obviously, you know, with a kind of bit of a qualitative research interest, that to me, those answers can be be gathered from those sorts of methodologies. But what what was that all about? I mean, why was there such a focus on intervention? And because if if you are focused on interventions, then it it makes sense that some sort of randomized control trial in some sort of um, you know, some sort of fashion gives you that sort of evidence. Mm. But, but it's only kind of now with the, with the kind of real, or um, well, the renaissance of evidence-based medicine with Trish Greenhawks and others that, that quality research and other questions are now part of the evidence-based kind of toolbox. You ask other questions, not just what, what treatment should I give this patient? Because it's kind of robotic and it's quite narrow.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, let's let's remember that the the first movement with with Gordon Guy and his colleagues um, was very much focused on medicine and really biomedical contexts. So where randomized control trials can be done uh, with a lot more um, really well placed, randomized control trials are really well placed in pharmacology. So i can create a i can create a placebo I can double blind this study you know I can do a very, very strong methodological approaches using that you know using pharmacology, but when it comes to the world that we both exist in, you know these are complex interventions uh, outside of prescription of a pill um so 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 I think that that's probably why it was. It was really trying to look at those types of interventions, and also their high-risk uh, interventions. So, so mm-hmm. it's is, it is important for us to know, in quotes, and I use the term loosely, what works. Um, but uh, when it comes to those, uh, and you've hit the nail on the head, actually, one of the issues were that qualitative methods were de-emphasised. So by using this uh, evidence-based hierarchy, that stuff wasn't important. I'm sorry, Ollie, it just wasn't important.
0: I would have been out of the job in the 90s or 80s. <laughs> yes. so, but it,
1: it, it wasn't as important. But actually, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with the renaissance of EBM and, you know, uh, very robust, pragmatic and mixed methods, um, you know, we are heading towards a direction where there's equal balance. And you're absolutely right. Those questions that you're asking can't be found in a randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. And there's still, let's say, even if we were to get all the methodology correct, uh, or comfortable or to suit our thoughts or perspectives, we still need to translate that to the individual case. So there's mm-hmm. still, a, there's still a, 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 an issue, I guess, with um, the transformation of uh, knowledge yeah. acquired from research, but applying it to the particular case. Um, and also there's lots of different types of knowledge and they come from different in different ways in
0: different contexts um, with the revised and more contemporary iterations of ebm which reposition the patient don't they or the person yeah. at the center whereas before and whether it was whether i'm sure it wasn't the intention of guy and sackett to 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 take it down that somewhat narrow rct um, focus stream but th- th- that was it was misused or misconceived by by um by individuals. So the contemporary um, and sensible version of EBM repositions the patient at the center, doesn't it? Yes. And yep. values their narrative, their experience, and that evidence should be used in the context of that individual. And I think it, it wasn't the case. I think it was all—it was probably already there, wasn't it? And, and if you look at that, that famous definition of, of um, evidence-based practice and with medicine, it really was about the individual um, preferences and values, whatever the phraseology was, of, of the patient yep. with the clinician's expertise. So it was always in there somewhere, but it just what it was kind of forgotten about. Yeah, well, it was too difficult.
1: <laughs> it's far it's, it's far it's far easier to be able to take the e information as read from research um, you know hold on a second you're talking about patient values here what do you mean patient values? do you mean that it 's all clinical expertise? What do you mean by clinical expertise and also does that mean that it's an anything goes you as a clinician uh, you know so just mm. clinical expertise means that, that well that's risk that's risk risk of bias so so the de emphasis yeah. of people of humans. Was, to, was because of the focus on, on our natural biases. And because bias was the big evil, yeah, mm. research implicitly became the most important thing. Because it was objective. It was objective. It's associated with scientific objectivity. Um, but we don't live in a world that is full of objectivity. It's the mm. balance between objective. I am both object and subject. Going back to philosophy again, you know, we as humans have subjectivity and objectivity in our lives. Everything has to. We still have to interpret the the research. We still have to interpret mm. information given from patients. We still have to interpret our and, and be reflective and reflexive of and, uh, and 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 be critical of ourselves as clinicians. Mm. All of that needs to be interpreted and acted on, of which that now comes to another philosophical context of ethics, which we haven't discussed, of course. But, um, you know, is it, simple, is, it, is it simply just a case of don't do any harm, or actually should we be placing the emphasis on ourselves or the patients first? Um, and how does that look?
0: The evil of subjectivity, or at least the, the perception that to be subjective was to be unreliable, inefficient, all those kind of things... But now we recognise that the clinician's expertise, their own um, kind of self-awareness, and their own judgments and intuitions, they're part of being a human clinician. And rather than being detrimental to clinical practice, they can be be valuable, and they should be they should be incorporated, but just in a critical way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if I go back onto my, you know, my journey was that if I felt I had enough objective knowledge, it was going to be simple, I could create a recipe book, which I then just need to apply to these patients, these patients, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I would have all the answers. So, yeah, so, so it, was very, it was based on this really simple premise that if I understood, let's say, back pain, if I understood the randomized control trials of what interventions are best compared to others, all I simply needed to do was take that information and translate it directly into practice. It's as simple as that. Yeah? Um, but apart from all of the, let's assume. the the depth of our conversation hasn't even been met. Let's suggest that that was true, that all of that information was relevant for this particular case. I still have to do it in action. I still have to Mm. understand that person's thoughts, feelings, beliefs, behaviors, you know, their cognitions, their emotions, but there has to be an action. And the translation of all of that information still has to be embodied within a form of practice. So Mm. communication is not just words as well, of course. You know, it's the way in which we set ourselves, it's the environmental context, it's how we use our body communication. Um, we still have to translate what we feel, what we understand, be open and honest, and, and place that, pa- that person in front of us. Actually, even, even, that's, even that is, a, is, a, is something that perhaps is relatively de-emphasized. It's not about us and our knowledge. Actually, what's more important is the patient's knowledge, the person's understanding, and how can we start with that as the firing point, as, as the starting point, rather than ours, and mm-hmm. trying to accumulate my—that's you know problematic. It was—it was about how much knowledge can I, how much expertise can I a- achieve, mm-hmm. and by having that ach- through propositional knowledge, you know, knowledge is fact. If I had that. Propositional knowledge. I surely it's just an easy question of information in, information Mm. out. They'll take that Mm. information, but no, that's that's not the case. And so, reading Carl Rogers and the work from motivational interviewing, client-centered care, person-centered care, in the the way in which we communicate, where we should, well, we should. That's problematic saying should anything, Mm. but um, you know, the idea that we. We start to impose ourselves on others, mm. our knowledge, our information, um, I think is problematic, and it, I think being with somebody and, and truly acknowledging them, them as a person first, rather than looking at the problems first, is really important. Mm. So seeing others as persons rather than problems, um, such as you've got your, your next patient to a low back pain patient. No, that that person has a name they have a family they have a history they have a content you know so it, the way that we construct our knowledge has to come from i think understanding the philosophical perspectives mm-hmm. that we we have whether or not you whether or not we accept that philosophy exists or not it you still, I think, there has to be some sense, that an acknowledgement that it exists, yeah. because it ch- it changes how you are as a person. Mm. If I if if I if I see um if if if, if I see somebody and I value themselves greater uh, and emphasise humans over problems, then that will change the way that I speak to them, mm. the the way that I um, uh, see their their world view, the way that I apply this knowledge that I have. Uh, to that particular person, how I frame the information, how I say it, um, uh, uh how I gain permission to give information to them. That comes from a philosophical perspective. It comes from a sense of who I am, who I want to be,
0: mm. and how, who, who I care for and what caring is. Mm. And that just recognizing that the spec the perspective that we have is just one of many perspectives out there and that yeah. that understanding the perspective of the person in, in front of us is to really understand that perspective and what comes with that perspective is their thoughts, their cognitions, their, their story, all that kind of stuff is that we need a range of of different skills and we need a range, uh, we need a range of skills to be able to access it or construct it, whatever your position is, but to to develop that sort of information, which is meaningful to the patient and ultimately meaningful to your, 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 your shared decision making. We've got to develop some of those skills. So, so it begins to shift to shift our skill set from kind of mere kind of tools of intervention or assessment to much more conversational or kind of dialogue um, based skills. Absolutely. So you could
1: see um, shared decision making on the one side of the spectrum just being about options. Okay, um, okay, Ollie, you've got this back pain and sciatica. You've had it for a long period of time now. Uh, you've tried your amitriptyline, and you've tried some uh, low-dose opiates, and you've tried your anti-inflammatories, and you've done your exercises. We've done an MRI scan of your back. It shows a posterior lateral disc protrusion at L5S1. It's concomitant with your symptoms. These are your options. Now, you know, sorry, that doesn't sound like particularly shared decision making. Thanks for
0: involving me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so so you know, at one end we've got shared decision making, which is very much again, you know, oh yes, well, I gave the patient options. Mm. Well, okay, um, and 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 the the other is 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 to say, well, okay, well, that's a part of it. That's that's not the that's, whole. That's
0: really just informed consent, isn't it? Really, I mean, that, that's really just informed consent. It's kind of this very Kind of lightweight. Well, yes, you you shared some option with the patient, but to what extent was the patient really part of that construction?
1: Mm. But but when you see it, when you see some of it in the in the research, certainly in practice, people would say, "Well, that's shared decision making." Um, you know, uh, I gave them options. <laughs>
0: You know, so
1: so yeah. You know, I just think that it's even these kind of ideas that we think at face value. Yeah, shared decision making. What's the problem with shared decision making? When we see it in action, we start to think, oh, isn't that slightly a bit, bit bit more problematic? Um, and and you're absolutely right. It's saying, well, okay. Um, where are we now? Uh, what's your understanding of the situation? Um, uh, do we make sense of it together? Um. What, what choices have we genuinely uh, got here for moving forwards? Um, how, what do you think would be the best way in how we, how we, how we, how we move forwards? Um, I've got some options. I've got some ideas, but i would be really interested in what you think first. You know, those kinds of conversations. And you're absolutely right. It's about having, it's trying to take away this idea that, knowledge exists in my head and it needs to be transferred to you, and then you'll be absolutely fine. It's, a, it's kind of respecting others, their place in, 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 as first and foremost um, uh, in the conversation, and then as using our skills and expertise in order to, to work with them, supporting that person in a journey.
0: What is the relationship between person-centered care, as you understand it, and evidence-based practice? How do they, do they fit nicely together? Are they, are they are happy, is that a happy marriage?
1: Mm, yeah. So, and and also I would say that the traditional view of EBM um, probably wasn't even practitioner centered. It was, it was research centered, you know, the, 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 the science spoke first, then the practitioner then, you know, was, had to. Gain that information and then trans- translate it. Yeah. Um, so, so the question is: is is person centred care compatible with EBM? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But we could say what model of EBM and what model of person centred care. And but as a starting point. Yeah, as
1: a starting point. So yeah, I, I think I think it is uh, absolutely um however, what it does what what um we should be really emphasizing is that the 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 persons the patients, the people that we serve um are are held uh, first and foremost uh, at at a top of if you're going to put any hierarchy if a hierarchy exists, we place them at at the top because everything has to be centered around them for us to make good sound clinical judgments about that mm. person so for example, you know um, rather than looking at population data and trying to make some guesswork about how we apply that, uh, which of course is is, is valuable in in, in in a sense, um, can can we apply that person's context, their history, to um, to 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 the population data, and and we when we cautiously have a conversation uh, with you know genuine curiousness about them, about, them, about what their thought, their perspectives are, in order to take them on a journey where you would say, mm. some of the research suggests that these are the types of things, but I can't yeah. say exactly, I can't be confident with, with this in a very direct way. Yeah. Um, it suggests that these are things that, are, and, and, and it makes sense for you, if from what, what I'm yeah. reading, this makes sense for you. It seems that that seems to be a far better way we take the person's context first their comorbidities their social context and situation and then we apply the research evidence in its completeness towards yeah. that, that that particular case and that includes the qualitative work that you've you've done or or you know um it, it can't be just done in isolation
0: yeah it seemed to me that you could even if we were stuck with even if the renaissance of ebm never happened and we're still stuck with those original kind of um iterations of kind of science based practice if you like even if even if we we're still lumbered with that and people hadn't written the papers and kind of made the made the 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 change merely understanding our patients better you know you could you could you, even merely kind of having kind of conversations about your know, meaningful conversation about what's important to them their thoughts conditions, et etc, we could even apply the kind of traditional model of EBM better, even that would be better. I mean, it, 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 you know, having better conversations with patients and having a, a better understanding of, of what's important to them. We can still apply a poor version of EBM. That'd be better. I mean, that, that, that's you yeah. know, rather than just not, if you, you know, I guess the worst case scenario is not, understand, not understanding our patients. And having a horrible version of EBM. You know the science-based kind of, you know, research-based um, kind of practice. But well, at least if we kept the horrible version of EBM, but just understood our patients better, we could. It would be better than. <laughs> it would be a better version. But the fact we've got this kind of revised model of EBM and much more sophisticated models of person-centred care or the biopsychosocial model means we're in quite a good place, aren't we?
1: absolutely and and think you know it, the research methodologies have, have really improved as well, so um you know over the last twenty years we 've got patients now who are actively involved in the research process there is a you know I genuinely believe it 's beyond the tick box, although some may still use the mm-hmm. yes i've i 've you know uh, discuss this with patients, and you know, I uh, I gen-
0: uh,
1: Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, you know, and and the 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 forms of randomised control trials and things like that are, are are far more rigorous than they used to be. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in the, when I say that, I mean in in a pragmatic uh, clinical sense, they're far more
0: uh, complex. Yeah, and there's there's obviously there's nested qual studies now as well, aren't there? In in RCTs, they'll nest a, a qual study.
1: Abs- absolutely, so I do think we're going in the in the right direction. Um, but I still think, you know, at the end of the day, we have clinicians who then have to make sense of of that, and they 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 pro- are often, um, and I'm not saying this is the case in all, all situations, but sometimes evidence is used as some kind of hammer to beat somebody over the head with, whether that's their colleagues or whether or not that's the patient. They say, well, there is no evidence. Boom, boom, boom. You know, the, the dangerous words: there is no evidence. I think understanding really, and again, coming back to philosophy, when we're saying evidence, what do we mean evidence uh, evidence is? Uh, I do think that we should constantly reflect on when we say the word, what do we mean by the word? And as you said, you know, the whole point of this podcast, words matter. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, uh, and, and the, just those two simple words m- imply that there is a deeper meaning behind them. Uh, mm. And sometimes it just, you know, we should, potentially i you know i'm tending to become far more cautious with words now but we you know, potentially we should consider and reflect and stop probably hesitate more when we start saying these making these claims making making these strong statements
0: if you had any bits of advice maybe or any tips to clinicians who are who are out there msk clinicians that are kind of grappling with um with either evidence-based practice or wanting to to to, to be cons- to be considered to be evidence-informed or doing the right thing with with patients, and if you've got and are maybe worried about being um, overly biased or subjective, or what to do with some of those subjectivities and, and some of that judgment, so there's any kind of tips around that you could offer clinicians out there about how to to maybe settle some of those demons or or to to guide to, to guide some of their practice.
1: That's a really good question. Um, I, I, I tend to, again, through Trish Greenhall, I tend to draw from um, Aristotle's view of knowledge. And he, 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 he viewed knowledge uh, as three, three main things. Knowledge is facts. Knowledge as uh, craftsmanship or skill or tacit knowledge. And then knowledge is wisdom. So if we go into the first one, so knowledge is facts. Knowledge is facts is really important. And I think we can, if we can, so this is where the objectivity really matters. um there is a fact of the matter um, and but it how we act on the facts of the matter are not necessarily as straightforward as that, so um it's this idea that there, are, there, there is a fact of the matter, there is knowledge as facts, we can research, we can get some idea of population data, we can, get, we can look at correlational data, we can make some causal inferences on that causal info, uh, data, we can look at qualitative studies and make some inferences about the lived experience of people with back pain, for example. We can apply all of this knowledge and that's a very useful source, uh, source of knowledge. Then we've got knowledge of craftsmanship. So that's, uh, uh, knowledge of craftsmanship is 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 something that is very difficult to, um, it's something that we can see, it's something that we can observe, but sometimes we c- it's very difficult mm-hmm. to describe. So for example, if I were to watch you in practice, Ollie, and you were to do a passive movement with a patient and be able to facilitate a movement in a certain way, and you gleaned information and knowledge about them, and they gleaned information and knowledge about movement, there's no words that have been, uh, you've mm. been used to have that, but there is a mm. craftsmanship. There's a te- and 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 you've gleaned that from your experience and your knowledge of 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 previous, you know, associative memories, of similar yeah. cases, um, uh, and also your and your perspective of being.
0: And that's the idea that knowledge is Im- embedded in the doing, or knowledge and practice are inseparable.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and and so uh, and and there's sometimes there is a decision that you make in practice, or we make. Um, that sometimes feels the right thing to do, but we're not necessarily sure why. So an example might be red flags. A patient has told you that there are these features. They don't quite conform to the yes, no red flag formula, yet you still think that that person potentially has serious pathology. So you act on it, and they actually turn out to have serious pathology. And I'm sure many of us have had that experience. Where and, and that's that tacit knowledge. It's something that sometimes we find difficult yeah. to
0: explain. Something's not quite right. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I think just to say that, that I, th- I think isn't it uh, uh, the gut feeling of the clinician that appears to be one of the more reliable red flags? Hmm. Going, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, gut feeling is is uh, is very it's. It, it, when we look at gut feeling in the medical, in the research literature, there's quite a lot about it. But in the, in the therapist literature, it doesn't seem to be acknowledged as much. Mm. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and then there's knowledge is wisdom, which is the ethical component of when is the of acting at the right time, in the right situation, in the right context. Mm. So, so by by us unpacking knowledge as those three kind of distinct areas, we can start to say, ah, crikey, okay, knowledge is far far broader. Um, yes. But it's something that's meaningful. I've already given you quite nice examples. I think of, of oh yeah, okay, that that applies. I can see where that makes sense. So, so that that would be a top tip. Top tip would be, knowledge is, knowledge is facts, it's craftsmanship, and it's and it's wisdom. It also therefore through through that is inherently Uh, value-laden. Therefore, there are going to be elements of knowledge which are socially constructed and evolve as time goes on. Well, if that's the case, then I have to be extremely humble about what knowledge I have and the knowledge of others. So if we've got all of this very contextual, um, um, context-sensitive aspects of knowledge, but it's derived from those, all those parts, you can see that getting access to knowledge, of course, is important, but it's how we apply it in, in practice. Mm. It's, 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 it's not just knowledge as cognitions, it's not just, if there, are, there are emotional re, re, reactions to, to, that, to that and there are also actions that come as a consequence for it. So it's inher- inherently value-laden, it's inherently socially, uh, it's not entirely socially constructed, but there is socially manipulated, and so therefore we have to, as humans, make sense of that ourselves and construct it with others. So, it, so this idea of, um, you know, how how you know lots of knowledge frameworks kind of describe things as these discrete entities. Mm. Well, uh, it, it, that's quite a nice way to um, a kind of uh, con- a construct a framework. But it doesn't. It, it, it becomes a heuristic, which is fine. I think heuristics are fine, but it shouldn't dictate any kind of way in which we act or, or do things in, in, in all cases.
0: Yeah, that's really, really helpful. You talk about values and clinical practice is value-laden. Pretty much, that that just means that that, that I, I take it to mean that, that there's no, there's no position we can orientate ourselves to have an objective view on clinical practice that wherever we go wherever we stand i mean there's just our values are just bleeding into everything that that we kind of care about in our clinical practice what do you make of values-based practice and and um Fulford, bill Fulford, Mm. values-based practice it is it complements evidence-based practice but if evidence based practice was done properly would do we need values based practice i mean if if values if values appeared if, if they you know if they were if they were prioritized as they rightly should do and should be in ebm or ebp what's the need for a values based model do you see what i mean you not it, 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 it just it, it just came about because of the 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 kind of void of values in traditional models of ebm that someone said oh we should really prioritize values let's develop a new model what, what do you think about that yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, I think um, you've
1: hit the nail on the head is that most, that there's this tendency, if we looked at the, uh, the traditional EBM, of looking at evidence as almost this discrete thing, as opposed to a plurality of evidence, multiple sources of evidence. And I think what values based evidence really does is it, it it really highlights this idea of weak, um, evidential pluralism, this idea that evidence comes from a number of different sources. It comes from, it's not just from, from one source, and uh, how it is applied um, has uh, it can be applied through uh, through the meanings of values. Um, yeah. So, so to answer your question, if we could join those two together, which is essentially a renaissance of of evidence based practice, we wouldn't need. Th- The the other, the the one or the other. It it comes again. It comes down to your philosophical view of what you believe knowledge is. If you believe that knowledge is this objective truth, that there is one world of absolute universal laws, um, then this this world, the traditional world, is going to sit really well in it. But if you, if but if but if actually you think it's are more multi layered than that, then we have to incorporate this movement away from that unidimensional view into a much more multidimensional, pluralistic perspective. Um, and, and I think um, by incorporating much more focus, it basically highlights the aspect, you know, you've got that uh, patient's preferences and values. Mm. What the values-based practice really does is say, hold on, it's not, it's not just, yeah, it's not just patient values. <laughs> mm. It's society's values as a whole, including clinicians and researchers. So yes, yeah. To answer your question, if we had a renaissance of you know of of of, of real EBM, you know, um, the uh, sorry, a, a real ABM or a renaissance EBM, it would have the values
0: based practices as a key key component. Of it. A, a, a renaissance of the renaissance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <is> <laughs> renaissance point two. Yeah, <laughs> two Matt, thanks so much for coming on the the podcast. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm sure the listeners will really enjoy and take something valuable from our discussion. And I'll put in the show notes, I'll link to your paper and also your recent blog as well and where people can find you.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. So um, yeah, perspectives on physiotherapy, contemporary physiotherapy education, some of papers here and there. Yeah,
0: cool. Perfect. Thanks, Matt. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.